You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that your body contains more than 600 muscles, and each muscle is made of muscle fibers. And what they actually do is they have contractibility, which means the muscle is capable of shortening or lengthening as needed. And pretty much all the movement in your body happens because of this. And the motor cortex on the right side of your brain controls muscles on the left and vice versa. For You have this crossover in your brain. And the signals come down the spinal cord and out through the peripheral nervous system into your muscles. But muscles can't ever push. They can only pull. So when you're pushing a door open, your muscles are actually pulling your elbow and shoulder against the door. And each muscle type in your muscular system has a different purpose. You're able to walk because of skeletal muscles. You can digest because of smooth muscles that move things through your digestive tract. And your heart beats because of cardiac muscles. So we have all these amazing specialized types of, of cells. And we're going to talk more about muscle and the muscle in your mind, which isn't actually a muscle as well in today's interview. Before we get going on today's interview, I would love to ask for your help. I've made the decision to put a lot of Bulletproof products up on Amazon for you. So if you'd like to get Bulletproof products on Amazon, I'd be grateful if you would just leave a review that says why you why you buy them, why you like them, what they've done for you in your life. Because it turns out when people see reviews on Amazon, especially real reviews, I've never done any of that fake kind of stuff, uh, it'd be great just for people to hear about it. So take a second if this show is worth your time and go to Amazon and say, hey, Bulletproof stuff rocks because, well, I believe it does. That's why I make it. And thank you for trying it. And also just wanted to do a quick shout out to greatest.com. I've known Derek, the guy who runs Greatest for quite a while, and he's very rigorous on quantitatively measuring what people are doing online. And they created an annual list of 100 most influential people in health and fitness. And I was amazed to find that based on their analysis, I hit number 16 on the list And there were more than a dozen other people on the list who've been on Bulletproof Radio. So when I look at reaching out to people who are at the top of their field, when I find that the guests on the show are people at the top of their field, uh, that made me feel good too. So thanks, Derek. Thanks, the team at Greatest for doing all the quantitative analysis you do on that list. I'm grateful for being number 16, the highly caffeinated high-fat exec, which is a great description. Today's guest is none other than Frank Zane. Frank is a... American former professional bodybuilder, author of more than 15 books on fitness, nutrition, and bodybuilding. But calling him a bodybuilder doesn't really do him justice because he's a three-time Mr. Olympia, and his physique is considered to be one of the greatest in the history of bodybuilding due to his incredible focus on symmetry and proportion. And he was called the king of aesthetics in the bodybuilding world. Today, he's 75, about to turn 76, And he offers a variety of personal coaching and training programs and training seminars and posing clinics. And I wanted to have him on the show because he's one of the biggest names in the field and some of the first biohackers out there or people who said, I want control of my physiology. I want control of how I look at a level beyond what anyone's ever done before. So he he started doing this uh, back when I weighed 300 pounds and was hacking computers and in, even probably before that and has just achieved incredible results over his lifetime and is still going strong. So it's a real honor to have you on the show, Frank. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Dave. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. There's so much I want to talk about, but one of the most obvious things is that you're a bodybuilder. And so many people listening to the show today, uh, some of them, in fact, most of them want to look good. You know, they, they'd like to have some degree of physique, but maybe not the level of mass and all uh, that you had. So in your mind, having been to the extreme of bodybuilding, what does fitness look like for everyone, including those of us who aren't bodybuilders? Well, you know, I think there are a lot of uh, myths out there about, you know, what you might look like if you work out with weights. And most of them aren't true. It's very hard to get a lot of muscle. I mean, it was for me. And I think most people, they don't really have to do too much to look better as long as what you do in your workout and how you eat is better than what you've been doing. And you do it on a regular basis, you're going to make progress. 
And so there's really nothing to be concerned about as far as I, well, there is one thing is don't get injured when you're doing this. Don't do stupid stuff. Yeah. You know, be careful, learn good form, uh, stretch during your workout. We stretch between sets and it keeps the, the muscles uh, warmed up and the joints flexible. So if you do everything with common sense, you'll be okay. I went through a period in my life where, in fact, this is funny. I, I wonder if it might have even been uh, your cover of, of men's fitness, but sometime in the the early nineties, I weighed 300 pounds. I was, I was fat, but I was desperate. And I said, nothing matters more than get, than getting in shape. So I went to the gym six days a week, an hour and a half a day. It was half weights. I, I did mostly Nautilus machines uh, to the point I could, I did this for a year and a half straight. I could max out every machine in the gym with the exception of a couple where I was missing two plates. Um, and I went on a on about an 1800 calorie a day diet, sometimes 15, sometimes 2000, low fat, and I never lost a pound. I, I mean, I, I was strong, but I was just covered in fat. And I I felt like such a failure. Um, just like maybe I should have eaten more lettuce or something. Did you ever run across people like that in, in your in your career where like they just wouldn't lose fat to save their lives? Well, the, the way you've been training, I'd have to know more about it, but training for strength that's not going to make you smaller. What you might have done is uh, built muscle and maybe lost some fat, but overall the, the net result was the same. And so what you should do really is train faster with less rest between sets in your workout, use lighter weights and higher repetitions, and then concentrate on more aerobic activity and, uh, and be on a good diet. And the diet sound okay, what you're doing. I, I'm, in, I'm in good shape now, and, and I ended up going for... So how did you do it now? How did you get down to where you're at now? I, I do the, the the bulletproof diet approach, which is mostly vegetables uh, on a plate with a large amount of high quality fat, including one of the four types of, of MCT oil, a substantial amount of that, which has been a, a, that basically came from the bodybuilding field, but it turns out there's one type that's stronger than others. So I have ketones present all the time in my body uh, and I eat a moderate amount of very high quality protein, but not as much as I did when I was lifting really heavy. And my muscle mass is is smaller than it used to be, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm relatively muscular. I, I carry about 107 pounds of, of muscle uh, today and about 28 pounds of fat. So I'm, you know, I'm about 10 to 12% body fat. So I'm, I do this on a regular basis, but I eat butter. I eat this uh, brain octane oil. It's called collagen protein and just tons and tons of vegetables. And, and it's been sustainable without any hunger or cravings, but I don't work out a lot right now. I, I use technology, the electrical stim and and other you know, computer-driven biofeedback stuff because I, I'm short on time. <laughs> but the thing that, that I was bringing up about this, this magazine, Frank, is that on the cover it said, get abs. And I was just so desperate for abs, and I'd been working so hard, and I had flabs, you know, I, even though, I, like you said, I did put on muscle, but I was still covered in fat. And it said this radical thing, like, maybe you should eat less carbs and, you know, more protein at the time. And... I said, all right, I'm going to try this. And I lost like 50 pounds in three months when I added things like cottage cheese and, and stuff that maybe isn't the highest quality protein. And, and I just wanted to say, it was a bodybuilding magazine in the early 90s that, that led me to start going, wow, I can do this. The other 50 pounds of fat took a long time to lose. But systemic inflammation and things. So I, I, a, I want to say thanks for being a leader in the field and giving me hope when I was 23 and just a complete fat ass uh, in order to do this. But as you've coached so many people, I'm wondering about the people, men or women, who just like, dang it, exercising isn't getting rid of their fat, uh, what, what you tend to recommend for them. Well, most of the time it's related to how they're eating. I mean, that's usually how people get heavy. It's, it's lack of enough exercise. But I think diet is one of the major factors. Okay. And what we've all, I've always, I just basically have gone what worked in my career because I experimented with a lot. Uh, especially in the early stages. When I first st started going into competition, I thought that in order to diet, what you had to do was do a liquid diet. Oh, yeah. And I found out <laughs> that wasn't right. <laughs> then I eventually got around to, uh, you know, lowering the carbohydrate intake and eating just enough carbs for immediate energy purposes and having your habits spare the protein you're eating and, you know, a moderate amount of fat, not zero fat, but not real high either. And it was that over time that worked for me. And I still sort of eat that way too. The diet was one gram of protein 
per pound of ideal body weight and half a gram of carbs uh, for that same amount. So let's say you weighed 180 pounds, you'd be getting 180 grams of protein a day. You'd be getting 90 grams of carbs a day. And then you do that. And then the fat intake is moderate. It's about 25% of your total caloric intake. But you do that for three days in a row um, where you have 180 grams of protein, 90 of carbs, three days in a row. And then on the fourth day, you equalize protein and carbs to restore glycogen stores. And also so you can continue training, have some energy and get a good pump. Because I found in other people, everybody has a different kind of experience with this diet. When you go real low on carbs over a period of time, you basically start losing muscle mass. Yeah. And plus all kinds of un- unpleasant things happen because you're in ketosis all the time. So I found that by bringing your body into ketosis, but then pulling it out, staying <laughs> on the edge of ketosis was better than heavy ketosis. Amen, brother. Uh, thank you for saying that. I, I'm concerned there's a lot of people now who are really deep in ketosis all the time, and it seems to wreck their biology over time. It, it did to me when I ran an experiment. A lot of bad side effects. Yeah, but being right on the edge or going in and out has been, it's changed my life. And, and you're 75, and I'm looking at you right now. You've got your hair, like, like you've got shoulders. Your brain is clearly working. Uh, and it's not always the case. So what, what you've been doing has been field tested for like 40 years plus. How's, how is aging working for you? I mean, a lot of people say bodybuilders don't age well, but you are aging well. I mean, even your face looks good. So, so what, what's the process of, of aging looked like, and how have you had to modify or not modify what you do over time? Well, thanks for saying that, Dave, but I don't really feel that way. I think I look terrible, and so does my, and so does really? my wife. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't look like I used to. But, you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm starting to work out again. Basically, I've been through some, some surgeries and injuries and taking care of those, and I haven't been working out as much, but I'm starting to step it up now. And it's not like I've been in shape for 61 years. That's how long I've been doing this. It's more like I've gotten in shape 61 times. Interesting. And so I never really go far off what I'm doing. In other words, I don't get fat in the off season. I don't bulk up, although I tried that. I, I stay lean most of the time. And that works for me, and I don't eat much. And my diet is nutritionally dense. I take a lot of supplements, free-form amino acids especially, uh, other supplements like CoQ10, uh, ATP. Uh, and these things, I really believe they work very well uh, because, you know, all my blood levels are good. Uh, I don't seem to need as much sleep. I'm, much, I'm lighter than I was before. So, But I'm back, I'm, I'm back training hard again to get better peak for this time of the year. And I think one of the things that I've done over the years is I have a cyclic method of training where I reach a peak uh, every year. Now, it's it used to be my best condition ever when I was competing. But since then, it's my best condition for the whole year relative to the rest of the year. And it's basically when I used to peak for competition, which is around October. And so for me, that's my peak training season. I plan everything to train gradually harder and harder and harder. Peak in October. And then from October, maybe to January, February, I'm in what's called maintenance phase. Where I don't train quite as much, but my training is directed to weak points, areas on the, my body that I don't want to improve more in relation to everything else. So that when I improve them and I come back to regular full-fledged training in the springtime, I have a different look. And that's always what, I, what I've been doing. The other thing is I base my entire training program on photographs. I never bother with any of that stuff. I don't bother with numbers. You know, people that come to see me, we don't measure them or weigh them, do body fat percentages. We photograph them and we keep photographic records. The other thing is I morph photos of people that come here for programs. I show them what they could look like just by doing special effects on their photos, changing the outline and their proportions. They get an idea of what could be possible for them. And they use that as a visualization exercise. So I've been doing all this. This is what I've come to after all this time at what wor- what works, and I continue to do it. There's so many nuggets in there, and let's focus first on supplements. Uh, you earned the nickname the chemist because you have uh, some just deep knowledge of amino acids and supplements. There are a variety of people out there, uh, including something 
it was either the Lancet or the British Medical Journal saying supplements don't work just came out. They, they do this, I think, to support the pharma industry about every, every three or four years. Uh, you've been doing this for a very long time. You understand the biochemistry. And uh, you're saying free-form amino acids and mitochondrial enhancers are the two main things you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I just wrote a, a major book at the New York Times Science List on mitochondrial function. Uh, so we, we could go deep on that. And a lot of listeners, there's a lot of physicians and, and just a lot of people interested in, in having energy throughout their body who listen. What are, aside from CoQ10, what are the other things you do to make your mitochondria perform better? Well, you know, I think it's probably everything I take. Uh, <laughs> I, it's, hard, it's hard to really say this is what's doing it because I really don't know. It's just that it's so synergistic, everything works together. And so I, I take as many things that I think I need. You know, like for one thing that I've discovered that works really well, people ask me about steroids and what's the story? You know, that's a shortcut for, especially for competitive bodybuilders to level the playing playing field. And also men, as they get older, there's this this hormone replacement thing where people, guys are given testosterone and maybe human growth hormone and all that. And I, you know, I, I think that that stuff uh, does have side effects that aren't desirable. Oh yeah. You know, your testosterone levels go too high, you get aggressive and that's, that's not a good feeling. I mean, it's not good for business. Uh, you know, and, and basically you don't, it doesn't really enhance your youth. All that uh, taking testosterone just brings about you looking older sooner. Your body, you know, you can train harder and recover faster, but it doesn't really enhance how long you're going to live. I've been using a, a combination. I just got back doing this of fenugreek seed mm-hmm. and seven keto DHEA. And by doing this, you know, most guys in their their seventies have testosterone, total testosterone level of two hundred. Oh yeah, I had mine tested about six months ago and it's five sixty seven. That is great. This is, to- this is totally natural without doing anything. You know, and, and so when I start on this stuff, it's been shown that uh, fenugreek seed. Uh, does uh, boost testosterone growth hormone in, in uh, you know thyroid levels, optimize thyroid levels, and then DHEA is a mother hormone, and seven keto DH is one that doesn't bring about the uh, the secondary male characters. It's like lower voice, thinning hair, heavy, all that stuff. So women, that's if women are to take that, they usually take seven keto. Uh, but that's what I'm doing. It's it's all natural substances. I don't eat much, and uh, I train on a regular basis. Plus, I meditate a lot. Ah, uh, we'll get into meditation. Uh, do you actually fast? Do you do intermittent fasting, or do you occasionally just not eat for a day, or do you eat every day? I don't do. I don't fast. You know, and also you mentioned intermittent fasting. I think that's one of our programs that we recommend with people who want to start losing weight, get to, to get the ball rolling, eating every other day, not even fasting on those, just eating less on those days. Yeah, using amino acids. Uh, and it works very well. The next step would be that three-on-one-off diet we talked about. And then the final state, stage of dieting is just basically to adjust your carbs and your protein and fats to a level where you feel comfortable, which is usually about as much carbs as protein. I mean, it's maybe a little less carbs, but it's all right around that balance. And what happens if people eat too few carbs? Well, a lot of things. You can get... Uh, dehydrated for one thing because carbs hold water in your body you can get constipated because you have no fiber going through you can get lethargic because you you know you just don't have any you don't have any fuel to, to run on and what can happen is your body can start tapping into lean muscle mass which basically your hips and your thighs where most of the muscle is and pull out gluconeogenic amino acids like glutamine or alanine send them to your liver and take, strip the nitrogen off, use that for energy. And then what happens is it robs your muscles for energy. And this happens with a lot of people when they get older. They don't need enough protein or exercise with weight-bearing movements to help maintain the muscle mass. They just eat a lot of empty carbs and they shrink. So that's never happened to me, so I, I don't do it. Because you've, you've had a, a clean diet for a long time, and I, I think your supplements uh, – would likely work based on my my own experience with those. And I didn't mention this in our, our pre-conversation. I, I've run an anti-aging research group for uh, about 20 years now in, in Silicon Valley where we've had people come through. So I, I've had a lot of time working with, with people at different ages, mm-hmm. just looking at what happens and exactly what you said there. You, know, you, you start eating more carbs and you stop moving and you stop lifting heavy things. 
How often, for someone who just wants to look okay uh, and, and maintain their health, how often do you think they need to lift heavy things? I don't think you have to lift heavy at all. I think it's better to train with perfect form as close as you can come to it in your exercises and make lighter weights feel heavier. And that's the goal. Mm. Make lighter weights feel heavier. And there's ways of doing that, slowing down the negative, for example. The other thing is, in my gym, uh, I have a lot of machines with weight stacks. We wrap the weight stack with rubber cable so that as the the weight stack goes up, it stretches the cable and it creates more time under tension for the muscle. You don't re relax between reps. A lot of times when you're working out with weights, let's say if you're doing overhead press and you, you lock out, that's a rest for your muscle because you transfer to the joint. And so what we're doing is as you, and then certain exercises, like for example, the curl, when you're curling all the way up, you lose tension in the upper two thirds of the motion. Mm -hmm. But if you have rubber cable attached to that, you don't, you get resistance from the cable. And so you're able to use less weight means easier on your joints and still get a good pump, get blood going to the muscle because of the cable stretching. Combination of exercise of weight resistance due to gravity and also weight resistance due to stretching of the cable. So, so it's amazing how a small tweak like that, like making sure there's always tension from a cable, yeah. completely changes the physiological reaction to the stimulus of, of lifting. Um, I, I definitely use some, some stretchy cables on occasion, uh, and I've actually done a, a video series on that. And uh, I also use just like a, 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 just demoing a really heavy cable, but I also use sometimes the electricity. So no matter where the muscle is, it's getting stimulated. Or I use a computer driven, it's driven by a winch that could pick up a truck that always maintains a load no matter where you are, uh, because it feels like I can get like three times the muscle growth by never allowing the muscle to relax versus, you know, on, off, on, off. Um, and those little things, I think we have more science than we did, you know, in, in the 60s and 70s. But somehow you and, you know, the, the tribe of bodybuilders figured out these some of these little tricks uh, very early on without maybe a lot of literature. What What was your process to figure out what worked? Just to work out and, and experiment. You know, I ended up getting master's degree in experimental psychology, and that pretty <laughs> well describes it. It's all been an experiment. I mean, I know the theory, but I don't come from theory. I don't yeah. say, well, I read this in a book. Let's apply it. I don't do that. I come from what I'm doing and then maybe find some description to fit it, la fit it later. And that's how it all gets in place. It's all due to trial and tested stuff. So by going through all of it, making all the mistakes, getting injured. Now, I'm an expert on injury, too. I can help <laughs> people with injuries because I've had just about all of them. And so, you know, I mean, there's nothing I could not. I, I can treat them now. That's what I do. But before that happened, I didn't know any better. I, I just tried stuff. And, you know, basically the way it was with me is I was a school teacher for 13 years mm. while I was competing with professionals. And I would go into the gym in the summer, having the time off to train now. And there's Arnold and Dave Draper in there training really heavy. And I jump right in with them and train heavy. And before long, I, my neck was stiff and shoulders hurt. And it was like that all the time. And then when I finally retired from teaching and did pro bodybuilding full-time, I had more time to really focus on doing everything the way I needed to. And that's when I won the three, time, three times Mr. Olympia. What grades did you teach? Well, I taught high school mathematics, uh, mainly junior high school math, call it lower mathematics, not calculus, but just the basic stuff. And, uh, you know, it was sort of, I guess it was fun for the kids. Most of was there I was Mr. Universe teaching, teaching school. <laughs> and they said, one kid came up to me one time and he says, Mr. Zane, if you Mr. Universe and all that, what are you doing here? <laughs> I said, everybody has to be somewhere right here. Now I'm here. Because we didn't get paid anything in those days. Oh, you know? teachers, so, teachers still don't get paid very much. No, I mean, it was, my wife was teaching for a while too. And so, you know, we did all right. But then I had started with the mail order business and still doing that. That's really what, you know, what it all developed into. And the fact that I took a lot of photos, I have photos from every stage of my development from early on up to present time. And I can, you know, it tells the story. I always had a different look and it, the look kept evolving, but it didn't evolve in the direction of getting bigger. It evolved in the direction of getting more detailed development because I, I, I realized after, you know, making the mistakes and trying different things that this is how I, I was going to be able to do it is 
by focusing on having good proportions, small waist, everything developed in great definition and really good presentation, put the preparation in, and finally it paid off. I mean, I competed in the Olympia 10 times and I won it three times. What did you learn from teaching these kids? Well, I learned how to teach. <laughs> okay. And uh, the thing that I noticed, though, is I noticed that I had a really good lesson about once every two weeks. And so I said to myself, why, why do this the rest of the time? If I could just have a great lesson every week or every couple of weeks, or, you know, that would be much more satisfying. And that's basically I always wanted to teach, but in something that I was really, that I was really an expert in. And that got to be bodybuilding because I did it for such a long time. So it, it got me disciplined in the method of doing it. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I like the act of teaching, but I didn't like working in a public school. So I have to admit. It takes a certain kind of patience uh, to, to work. I, I, did, I was a volunteer teacher with, uh, what was it called? Junior Achievement. I'm forgetting the name of the program now, but I went in and I taught eighth graders in East Palo Alto, <laughs> which oh. is a, a really uh, rough neighborhood. Um, Really? Once a week, and <laughs> it doesn't sound well. It. There's there's <laughs> the normal Palo Alto, which is where all the VCs oh. live. You cross the freeway, and there's still unpaved roads, and it's where uh, it, it's an incredibly dense migrant population. So, sort of one of the so, so like East East LA, yeah, it, exactly. And yeah. so I, I went to one of the poorer schools there, and uh, uh, and and taught. And man, talk about just challenging, uh, just just at a at a emotional and a it's an emotional level where you're like, wow, like it's really hard to get through it to any kids that age, but particularly when they weren't eating very well and you know, they might've had stress at home. And I, I just realized, wow, I, I could, I, I was also a, a teacher at UC Santa Barbara or, or not, sorry, UC Santa Cruz. I, I, for five years was a teacher of, you know, master's degree level people. And uh, the difference there, what was, it, there was something that, uh, uh, that, that took an incredible amount of patience that for me as a young man was, was really hard for me to do. Um, but I noticed that in your, your teaching, it's very clear and it shows that you were a teacher because you know how to, how to convey information. But you also talk about this framework called LEARN and R stands for relax and LEARN. And you talk about rest and sleep and meditation and I, I'm kind of wondering if, if you got to be extra patient or learned the, the need for meditation because you were a teacher at the same time you're working out or whether those are unrelated. That's how I made it through the day. Okay. <laughs> that, that was your it trick. Was. I, okay. I meditated during my free period. Oh, you did? I did all different, different forms of meditation, insight meditation, gazing, mantra, did all of that. And I still do it, but it really, it really saved me. You know, I mean, it, it helped me maintain my cool. I remember one time I, I was doing uh, insight meditation, Vipassana, yeah. where you label your sensations and your thoughts as they come up. And I had already been doing that for a whole day. And I was sitting in the teacher's meeting, just wasting time listening to this stuff. <laughs> I had to go to graduate school anyway. So I left and the teacher called me out and I it just didn't phase me at all. Or the principal called me. It didn't phase me at all. And I continued doing what I was doing. And it just was a remarkable way to maintain my calm in spite of adversity. But, you know, I, I enjoyed teaching in the poor schools. I found that yeah. the kids were more appreciative and uh, and they respected me because here I was, you know, Mr. Universe teaching math. You know, they were like in awe sort of. So that helped. That worked in my favor. It's an incredible thing uh, for, for people listening. If you ever have a chance to be a volunteer teacher or something, uh, you, you've got to do it because it inspires the heck out of kids. It does feel good. And you'll, you'll learn some things about your own patience and what pushes your buttons because, man, kids are good at pushing your buttons, right? Um, what's, what's your meditation practice look like today? I say a mantra. I found this mantra in 1976 and I started saying it because it felt good. And, uh, I made a vow to say it a million times a year. And I did in those three years, 77, 78, 79, the years I won because my mind was just so focused and nothing could phase me, especially 1979. I went to, I had a house in Palm Springs that was really a gym. And uh, I just, for the whole month, I trained and got sun and ran at night and said my mantra all day. And I was just in samadhi the whole time of, of, of the competition. I mean, and I knew I was, I knew I was the winner. Wow. You know, and I was able to convince myself that I was the winner. And I think that's the secret of winning is to win it ahead of time. Yeah. And to think and talk like the winner, not to boast, but 
just to be sure, to be sure yourself. And then I had, I, I developed this concept of faith. There's really different degrees of faith. The, the ordinary faith is believe in, believe in things that are unseen that haven't happened. That for some reason you believe them and you practice this more and more and you're around people who do and you develop a strong faith. But the other level of faith, I believe is much higher level of certainty, being certain that things will happen. Not guessing it is you're sure. Yeah. And that's what I was able to do. I was able to become certain. And I was able to become certain because I got proof of what I looked like by all the photos I took. I realized that everybody that was going in a competition except me does not know what they look like when they get on stage. They find out at the contest and they either place high or not, usually not. But I knew what I looked like because I, I re- not only did I see what I looked like from all angles, but I also rehearsed the prejudging. I would go out and stand like, for example, round one was where you stood relaxed and then judges looked at how you stood, looked standing relaxed and then they'd call you up for comparisons. But what I would do is that in Palm Springs at six at night, it was starting, the sun was getting lower on the horizon. So I would go out and stand like I was uh, in the lineup for 15 minutes from the front, back in both sides for a total of an hour, getting a tan, believing that I was on stage doing this. And it was things like that, that, that yeah, I knew nobody else was doing that. So it made me all the more confident. You mentioned Samadhi. Can you describe what that state is uh, for people who haven't heard of it and your experience of it? Well, it's, I think definitely is peace that passeth understanding. You just have this incredible sense of peace and confidence about yourself, and there's no explaining it. You just have it. It just descends upon you. And that comes up every now and then. I was listening to Box Brandenburg and Cheryl yesterday afternoon, and I, I, that feeling all of a sudden came to me, just tremendously joyful and peaceful. And then I said to myself, hmm, I'm tremendously joyful and peaceful now, and then it went away. <laughs> <laughs> as, soon as, I try to, as soon as I try to put understanding, I try to understand it, it went away. It's not for understanding, it's for living and experiencing. I've no, I've no reason to question any of this. I'm just willing to accept it when it when it comes. It's funny that when you try to think about a feeling, uh, the feeling goes away. I run a, a neuroscience institute that's focused on these states like samadhi and things like that, more for for accelerating a lifetime's worth of meditation. And, and I had to do a lot of that work myself. And and I that, that was a beautiful description. As soon as you you notice and go, oh, that's cool, it it, it goes away. Yeah. But you were in that state for most of the time for for several years because you're sort of in the zone. So so part of your competing, maybe even the major part, was you had to do the work to make your body look a certain way. But you had to show up a certain way psychologically in order to win. Is that is that accurate? Well, I wasn't in it all the time. For me, preparing for competition, and I did that for 23 years. I competed from 1960 to 1983. I only missed two two of those years because I was traveling doing exhibitions. But uh, it, it, it was like preparing for competition was a very spiritual experience for me because I meditated to keep my mind in the right place because I noticed that if I didn't say my mantra, inevitably my mind would drift to what-if situations, like what if so-and-so looked like this or what if they're judging. I, I, then I realized that none of this had anything to do with how I looked. Mm. And so I focused on me and just thought about uplifting things all the time with my mantra and meditated and reinforced all that. And it happened. It just purified my experience. And I got to a level that nothing could shake me. Wow. So So you're just unflappable on stage. There wasn't a voice in your head that was like, I need to tighten my left ab a little more or. No, not not when I did it right. Got it. But there were years when I did not You know, that, that I wasn't conflict. Like 1982, I, I, I was just sort of, doing what everybody told me to do, get bigger. And I did, and I got a little bit too big and I lost my lines. And, uh, that year I was uh, not quite, and things didn't go right at the competition either. I ended up getting second and I, I could have done better if I would have just, you know, prepared in, with a different mind frame. But, uh, you know, it's sort of like, this is tricky business. Life tends to catch up with you if you're not careful and you're, you know, regular in your practice. And, you know, the thing is, my, my discipline, people, a lot of people look at my physique and they say, well, I think I can do that because he's not very big, you know, and he's, he's slender and I think I can go. They don't realize that all the work I put into that to get the look that I developed, it was not about big, it was about detail 
in completion about have everything developed. Like for example, the back. The back is a, is a lot of little muscles back there with big muscles too. And to really have an outstanding back, you have to really specialize and do a lot of tensing and rubber cable work and stuff like that. But if you don't have that, see in bodybuilding competitions, these are things that I realized for having done competition for so long, is you see guys lined up on stage, they all look pretty impressive from the front, but when they turn around from the back, things change. Backs aren't as good because nobody can see their back, right. not directly, and so they tend to ignore it. And so whatever you ignore is going to fall behind. You can't ignore anything. Did you take pictures? You so took pictures been, of your back? Oh, yeah. And, and looked at those? Okay. Everything. Sure. I mean, I didn't. My photographer did. My wife generally was the photographer in most of these situations. And, uh, you know, that's how you learn. The thing is, nobody can see themselves. People either think they look better than they do or worse. Even when you look in the mirror, you don't see yourself. You see yourself backwards. And that's a distorted image because that your gaze has to pass through your bubble of perception, if you want to call it that. It's this idea of how you look. It's your self-concept. You basically look different than what's in the mirror. Just put it that way. And you have to learn to see yourself the way other people see you. Mm. And that's, that's a meditation spiritual thing. That, that reminds me of the Gurdjieffian concepts of self-remembering. Self-remember, you basically are, are mindful of what's going on inside, but you're also mindful of what's coming in from the outside. It's like taking photographs of yourself all the time. But when did you start meditating? What age? It seems like I got interested in everything at age 14. Wow. You know, it was, I discovered bodybuilding. I discovered yoga and meditation. I discovered I was a harmonica playing and archery, and I still do all of those. I'm still passionate about all of them. Who taught you to meditate? Books. Books. I bought books. Beautiful. I bought two books I remember before I used to read them. One was about uh, Patanjali's aphorisms, about the powers, all that. One of those, of course. And I just, I was always interested in it for some reason. The Buddhism, very much interested in it student of Buddhism, because I, I like what it's saying. P- Patanjali wrote a, a book, that the Yoga Sutras, that describe all these these mental yeah. and we'll call them psychic powers that people are capable of uh, throughout history. City. Uh, cities, exactly. And that's S-I-D-H-I uh, for people listening who haven't heard of it and want to Google it. And do you think those are real? Well, I, I you know, I mean, I, I sort of have hints of those things every now and then. Uh, intuition gets stronger about things, knowing things before they happen, second sight, seeing things, and then they happen, but not on a large scale. Uh, another thing for me, I think, is the fact that I think that they're, they're a sign of spiritual progress. And basically, if you're on the Bodhisattva path, you are granted those powers to help people, not to use for personal gain. Yeah. And that's my goal as I get older is to teach, because I've already accomplished my, my goals for myself and body. You know, it was really nothing there, but I still want to work out and basically work out with people and, and teach what is, what is good for them to know as far as, I think there's a lot of, you know, unuseful, not good information out there about how you should train and I don't like it. So I want to get my, my brand out there as much as possible. When bodybuilding became a, a, a thing in the 60s and 70s, there was a, a really strong community that formed around it. Um, you know, down in Santa Monica and Venice and, and places like that. And uh, how important was uh, the role of community, you know, working out with your buddies and, and that whole thing? How important was that for your motivation, for for who you became? It, I loved it. It was everything. When I came to California in 1969, the older generation of bodybuilders like Joe Gold, Zabo Kazuski, Artie Zeller, our photographer, Joe Weider, they're all there and, and, and helped us. You know, I mean, we didn't, I didn't get, I didn't make any money doing that. That's why I was teaching, but I did it because I loved it. The older guys just—they—they they were such great people. It's like we were able to stand on the shoulders of giants from these guys. And uh, you know, I don't see a lot of that anymore. That community doesn't seem to be there. But it was really great—the early '70s, especially. How we all, you know, we didn't compete against each other in the gym. We helped each other and gave each other feedback. But then toward the end of the 70s, we were competing against each other because, you know, that we got to be the, sort of the best to compete against. So, but it was, it was wonderful. I mean, I, I still think about those days all the time. I still write about them. I still write about them. 
my, I finished this new book I have called Zane Bodybuilding Manual is all about that. It's actually everything I've, it's, it's about eight, eight of my works condensed into one volume. And uh, it, it is basically a reference book. And so uh, it's all traced. This whole story is traced in here about what I've been through and, you know, what's, what I'm, what's coming up now. What do you do today to, to maintain that sense of community in your life? I really don't have a lot of close touch with the people that were involved then because they're all in different places. Sure. And I don't really go to events either, but basically it's my program here, uh, my, uh, my, my Zane experience program at my private gym. And also uh, at the Zane gallery of uh, aesthetic muscle in Laguna beach, we have an art gallery up there. That's also a workout studio. And I do seminars there. And you spoke with the, with Julie space, who's the curator and uh, she's writing books now and it, train, person, doing personal training with people. And uh, she's become quite good at it and showing the results with her own, you know, development. So that's very satisfying with me. If I can, when I can help somebody else in their workout and see them make progress, it's like me doing it. it it's hard to explain. I get, maybe you get more satisfaction out of doing that now than on my own training because what I'm doing is just simple stuff, you know, just on a regular basis, but simple. It seems like throughout your life, uh, you've been motivated by by service to others. I mean, you you taught kids for thirteen years. You're still teaching people now. How much of your motivation comes from that that just desire to help, and how much comes from somewhere else? You know, there's there's two kinds of compassion. One is absolute compassion, where you, you're just naturally that way. I'm not naturally that way. I have what you might call relative compassion. I have to manufacture. <laughs> And I, I got to say, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm a selfish person. You know, bodybuilding is about the art of, uh, art of selfishness. I've perfected that. But basically, I, I think that one of the reasons I do this is because it makes me feel better. It's still all about me. I mean, I got to confess, it's, I'm still doing it for myself. But it's also helping other people more now than it did before. Before it was as an example, and now it's as practical application by working with. If you could go back and talk to yourself when you were 20 or, or, or early 20s anyway and, and tell yourself something that you know now, what would you tell yourself? Don't get injured and uh, follow your own path and don't listen to other people so much. I think they know how to what you should be doing. Uh, don't use as heavy weights. Save your money. Uh, you know, don't spend it foolishly. I mean, you know, the, one of the things about getting popular and you get all this money flowing and all of a sudden is you think it's going to go on forever. <laughs> and so you buy all kinds of stuff and it doesn't. I wish I was a little bit more conservative. I was okay with that, but not as good as I could have been. But, you know, it was all it was all learning experience. What you don't really profit from directly in form of gains in your life or, you know, wealth or whatever, you can always write off as learning experience. And so I can say it's all been a learning experience and there have been things that I haven't profited from, but there have been a heck of a lot of things I have. And so, you know, it's, it's just a bunch of things. I mean, I want to, I want to be around a long time. I mean, I want to be alive long enough so that I can get the things done that I would like to do. One of my goals for getting older as I get older, because, you know, I'm not going to be winning physique contests anymore, but is to become a better musician in a number of different instruments. And so every day, that's part of my meditation. I play about a dozen different instruments. Wow, that'll keep you know? your mind young. Well, you know, it's not so much me thinking about it. It's, it's things, I notice this flow comes through me, and I really like that because to me it's a spiritual thing. And it seems that every time I play something, it's better than the last time I played after I get into it. And so I have a bunch of harmonicas. I, I tune them and customize them and, and play them chromatics, diatonics, bass harmonica, and I make bamboo flutes. I make the Zen meditation flute, side-blown flutes, minor scales, major scales, and guitars. You know, I play rhythm guitar, open, open tunings, and uh, it keeps getting better. And then I write songs and poetry, just whatever, whatever happens to come to me. I try to, re I try to have a, a pad with me uh, most of the time, you know, as Jack Kerouac said, keep track of every day, the date emblazoned in your morning. And I've kept diaries over the years, my workouts, thoughts, ruminations, things that come to me, poetry, songs, rhyme. It's fun. So I'm having fun. Do you ever go back and read those? 
sometimes, you know, I mean, I have them all and they get transcribed into, into my writings. And basically I wrote some stuff years ago. I called it started out as Frank Zane's secret training diaries. And it was workouts <laughs> from my diaries and they're all in rhyme. They're like, everyone was, was a poem or a song. And that got, got published as mind, body, spirit, personal training diaries. And, uh, it got to be very popular after it sold, after it wasn't available anymore. So I published it again, called it The Workouts, and that's available now on Kindle. But it, it was basically more of a record of what I was doing rather than something applicable for everybody because it was my best workouts done over a 40-year period of time. I'll put it in a one-year's format. And I realized how difficult that would be for anybody to do. And so that's what motivated this book, which has been very successful, 91 Day Wonder Body, which is three months of what to do every day in the form of training, diet, mental preparation, meditation, motivational techniques. And it's actually a workout book. So see, it tells you exactly what's what to do there. And that's what my publications are now. We have one like this for the full body and then one called 91 Day Wonder Abs, which is for people who want to you know, get, get better at Maybe this is one you could use. <laughs> I'll uh, get your abs there because it will work if you do it for ninety-one days. Your abs have no choice but to stand out if you do that. I'll uh, I'll check it out. I, I I do have abs now, nowhere near what you do, but I can say as a as a guy who was obese for you know in, until you know, my my mid twenties, um, that seemed like just an impossible dream. And and I I still occasionally I see myself in the mirror and go, wow, like I don't really recognize that body. Uh, because it's radically different than the one I grew up with. And uh, um, well, just, your abs are expressing themselves; they're coming out. It, we all have abs in there, but you know the, the, how how much they come out is up to us. Yeah, they can be sort of hidden behind a few things. Frank, how long are you going to live? <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> Do you have a goal? Well, I I would like to to live to be over a hundred, but still be functional. There you go. You it's know, it's to be able still to be move functional. around and do things, and you know, still do the things I like to do and to, to contribute. I don't want to be a burden either as I get older. So your goal is past a hundred. Uh, that's uh, that is that's beautiful. I'm, I don't see why not. I'm working on something pretty radical. I I think that it's possible for me to hit at least 180. And I full disclosure, I'm willing to die trying. Uh, but uh, this this whole two decades of anti-aging research and, and seeing people who are beyond functional uh, when they're past 70, where their, their brains are sharp and they're moving around and, and I know it can be done. And, and it's a question of, you know, how to, how to get there. And, and I'm thinking that there's some, some restorative regenerative technologies coming down the pipeline that are, uh, that are probably going to lend some of that. But I, I, I feel like you're, you're at such a healthy state uh, where you are now um, that that's not an unreasonable goal to be highly functional uh, and to live past a hundred. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that everyone listening just starts thinking about that. Um, just like you think about how you look in a, how you look in the mirror and, and you have this picture of yourself that if the picture of yourself when, when you're 85 is, you know, hunched over and, and with only half your brain present, that that's more likely to happen. Whereas if you're visualizing a future where, you know, I'm going to keep, I'm keep doing what I love. I'm going to keep helping other people that, you know, it, it might be possible in, in your, in your picture of your own future, how much of that comes from your mental state and how much of that comes from your diet and exercise? Do you, do you have a sense of that? I don't view, view those as separate. I think it's all in, in one package. Hmm. There is but one common essence, okay? And that's everything wrapped up together. And I think that one of the things that I go out of my way to practice uh, the older I get is energy conservation. I think that you kick the bucket when you run out of energy. Instead of spending it all over the place and dissipating it, which I used to do more, but I don't do any of that now. You know, I, I do the things that make me feel, that give me joy, and I like doing. For example, I feel useful when I'm writing, and so I tend to write a lot. I've always had some project I, I'm working on now. I'm working on, I've never written a novel before, but I'm working on a novel now. I'm taking my time a few pages a day. And so that'll be that'll be interesting when I when that that comes to fruition. I have another book that hasn't been published yet that I've it's already done. It's called Ninety One Day Peak Physique. It's about somebody who is going into the final stages of, of perfecting their body 
what to do the last three months to bring that about, like a physique competitor would. And so there's there'd be three stages. There's basically 91-day Wonder Body, which is the mid-stage. Right. Julie Space is doing a book now called uh, Super Bo- uh, 60, 60 Day Super Body, which is a beginner's level of training with simple equipment and working through the levels where you don't need much equipment at all to get the, the base developed and get it started. And then it gets into more complex programs toward the end. And then you're ready to, to get into this book right here. And then after this book is one. So basically, it's something you could follow all the time, these books. There's no guesswork. People ask me all the time, say, well, make me up a routine. Well, you know, I can do that expediently if I'm working with you in person. But since I'm not, why don't you try this? Or basically what you look like, I can recommend things. But basically, I think it's more about educating yourself to do that. Because really, if you know enough about yourself and how to train and what works and what doesn't, you don't need an expensive personal trainer. And I'm trying to discourage people from doing that because I, I realize there's some good ones out there and it's a great source of motivation to have somebody to push you through your workouts if you can afford it. But, you know, I always looked upon, I work with people to get them to a point where they can take what I've helped them with and do it on their own because they have the skills and ability to do that and to develop the confidence to do that. And then if they want to check back with me anytime they can, I'll give them my personal feedback. And that's the L part of our bodybuilding equation at learn which is learning what you look like, your feedback, which is due to photographs and also expert critique. And then what you develop, what you get to look like is equal to the product of your exercise, your attitude, your recuperation, and your nutrition. And the better you do in those those super variable categories, the better you're going to look. That's the plan. You are a crazily creative person. You've... I mean, bodybuilding itself, your approach there has been very creative. You've been playing the harmonica and, and a dozen instruments now, but you've been playing that since you were a teenager. Uh, you're writing novels, writing books. Uh, and it, it seems like creativity just explodes throughout all these different aspects of your life. Is that something you cultivate or is that just a part of who you are? It happens because I'm empty. I cultivate emptiness. I cultivate clearing my mind and have nothing going on there. And when it's empty... It's like when you have a vacuum, you open it up, everything rushes in to, to, to fill it. When I'm meditating in, in the depths of meditation, I get all these brilliant ideas. But sometimes I don't even write them down because I want to keep going. It's like the Zen approach. You know, do you go directly toward the goal or do you stop to enjoy the distractions along the way? Well, I do, sort of do both depending on, you know, what my goals are at the time. But it just, it's a practice. And I notice that all this stuff comes around when I'm, you know, I'm open to it. It's the opposite of being, it's not like not thinking about, not wasting my time, idle speculation or false imagination. It's just clearing all that out so some really creative stuff can come through. And it does. Would you say that you've mastered your ego? No, but I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I don't collect trophies anymore except the Olympia trophies. I kept those. But, you know, I got to the point where I was winning. I, at one time, my goal was to win as many trophies as I could. And I, I had about 150 of them already. And it was like a room full. And then I won Mr. World Trophy. This is the climax. I won Mr. World Trophy in Belgium in 1969. And the trophy was six feet tall and it weighed 250 pounds of bronze and marble. Wow. And I had to leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> and so I got into the. I got into the, the, the practice of leaving trophies behind when I won them so they could give them to somebody else. I just take the nameplate off them. So I have a lot of nameplates, but I don't have that many trophies anymore. But I, I think that was symbolic of my ego reduction. I think that, you know, bodybuilding is about building your ego, and that's what you do. You build your identity, who you are, become, you know, one with that, and it's all about competition, you, the more you win. The bigger your ego gets, you know, you make a name for yourself. You develop a sense of self-importance, who you are, you know, a Mr. Olympia, all that stuff. But, you know, eventually that that reaches a point where you don't really want it anymore. I mean, I don't really want it so much. I mean, I enjoy the notoriety at times. But the rest of the time, I just like to be, you know, not having to think about me all the time. You know, so I've sort of had it with me. Now I want to expand that concept out to include more. And that's where I'm at right now. Frank, if someone came to you tomorrow 
and said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being. Just based on your entire life's experience, what top three pieces of advice would you have for someone? Well, I'd say start start working out, you know, do a regular exercise program because physical activity and something like uh, like working out with weights is, is actually a meditation in action. It's moving meditation. You learn to focus on something, develop your focus, your concentration, be able to narrow down your attention to something very specific and burn a hole in it. That's why I'm good at bodybuilding. I have tremendous focus, but I'm not really good at multitasking. I'm not good at doing more than one thing at a time. And so that has had negative consequences, but it's also very positive as well because I, you know, whatever I focus on, I tend to do. I also don't do a lot of things. I, I tend to specialize now in the things that I'm already involved in and good at, relatively good at rather than learning a lot of new things. But I have learned new things over the years recently, like playing guitar, making flutes. I never knew how to do that. I just became interested and started doing it. Now I'm getting better at it. So I'd say that develop focus, concentration, work out, you know, become aware of yourself, start getting photographed, try to develop the ability to see the way you yourself, the way other people see you, you know, and, and be nicer, be nicer. I have a poem about that. It's about people who try to influence you to their way of thinking, their religion, for example. And so to them, I say, Christ or Buddha, what's it to you? It's the message, not the medium. Don't let it fool you. I learned that all the great teachings lead to the same end. Be nice. Practice empathy and kindness. You have nothing to lose putting yourself in another's shoes. Wow. What a fantastic... It's all about that. It's all <laughs> about that. It's all about summary. being nice. <laughs> if you can't do that, you're not going to get anywhere. Very very well said. I, I, I fundamentally believe that that's our, our core state is to be nice to each other yeah. and that... When we're not nice to each other, it's because you know our mind is in the right place because we ate crap, uh, because we were lethargic, and, and there's all sorts of things that, that take you off your game. But what a what a fantastic way of of, of just putting it into four simple lines. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your poetry on on Bulletproof oh, my Radio. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. In <laughs> in 500 episodes, no one no one has ever uh, recited one of their own poems on the air. So you're you're the first there. Frank, thank you for being on Bulletproof Radio. Uh, it's been a, a, uh, an honor and a privilege to be able to interview you and, and learn from your, your life's work. And thanks for all that you've done and all that you're still doing. I'm, I'm genuinely grateful for it. Well, thanks for the interview. It's been great talking to you and uh, learning your ideas. And I'm, I'm glad you're so involved with you know, the neuropsychology and, and the mind-body experience. It's great. And uh, being up there in Northern California where all that good work is going on, it's it's must be really nice. It, it's a beautiful part of the world, that's that's yeah. for sure. Uh, Frank, your your main body of work is at frankzane.com. So people listening, you can tell this is a very unusual human being uh, I, I just interviewed here uh, with uh, that unusual combination of a mental and spiritual and physical and, and a teacher as well. And I would encourage you to check out his work. I just go to his webpage, it's all there. And, you know, the uh, thing is, I would like to get more people coming, as many as possible, that can benefit from my program, The Zane Experience. I've been doing this ever since the, you know, 1980, and I, do, I take people for one, two, or three-day programs where I, I work with them privately to develop good form in their exercise and work on the other areas like nutrition and energy conservation and what we call high-tech meditation. We use light sound machines. We've been doing that for quite a while. <laughs> I love it. And all that, and uh, basically giving the whole picture of bodybuilding and uh, what it's all about. It's not just lifting weights. It's it's a, I think it's the the most tremendous method there is for personal growth, because it covers everything, even yoga. I mean, yoga is great. What doesn't have? Well, you don't see people that with this we have the, the the ability to change our appearance, to change the way we look. That that really can't do that in many other areas. I mean, it might happen as a result of it, not directly. We focus on that. We make it happen. So we'll be able to create what we want by doing it correctly. So come and let me show you how to do do that, everybody out there. And that's in Southern California. What city is the Zane? That's in San Diego. In San Diego. 
Well, yeah. next time I'm in San Diego, which happens pretty often, uh, I, I might swing by for a day. I think that'd be fantastic. Please do. Time. Please do. Beautiful. Frank, thanks again. Thank you, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.